Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It was the most lopsided defeat ever inflicted on the Army of the Potomac, and at the same time, a victory barren of strategic results for the Army of Northern Virginia. It saw tactical futility, bureaucratic bungling, and unimaginable human suffering. Could the Battle of Fredericksburg have been any worse? We'll talk tonight with Frank O'Reilly, author of the classic account, The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the otherwise empty Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not representing the university or the history department or anybody else, just myself. My guest, likewise, speaks only for himself tonight. Here in the first show of the year 2022, I hope everyone is remaining healthy as the pandemic drags on into another year. I hope everyone's gotten fully vaccinated and protected as best they can. And uh, we'll do our best to get, get through another season. This is season 18 of Civil War Talk Radio, the second half, the spring half of the uh, 2020, what, no, 21-22 academic year. Uh, never thought this would have gone at 18 years when it started. A lot has gone, water has gone under the bridge since then. And a lot has happened since we last spoke uh, together a few weeks ago at the end of 2021. The uh, college football season is over, for example. The ECU did not get to play its bowl game. The other team backed out because they didn't feel like it. Uh, Modern Michigan got crushed by future national champion Georgia, but that matters 
not at all still basking in the memory of the Ohio State and Big Ten title games. That'll sustain me till next year. And of course, this is the time of year normally uh, after the end of college football when uh, I used to talk with you about how the nation and indeed the whole world was looking forward to the next big contest, which would be the Beast of the East Youth Soccer Tournament uh, featuring the Greenville Stars U-12 girls team that I used to coach. Uh, every February, uh, people would you know have their Beast of the East parties and get together, and just it, it was in all the everywhere. Uh, well, over winter break that just passed uh, on New Year's, we had a small gathering at our house on New Year's Eve to watch the Michigan game with uh, other alumni and family members, and my daughters were there, both former Greenville Stars players and. One of them had some of her former teammates come over. They they live they were visiting the area at the holiday too. And here are these girls who I used to wonder mm, should I start her at uh, half or uh, forward tonight. And here they are at my house with their fiancés, uh, talking about their. Uh, some of them are married with children. It is it, it was just sobering and shocking to see how much time has gone by uh, to the. Uh, the, the, the U-12 Greenville Stars and where, where they are today. And they're all doing well, I'm happy to say. Well, it's a new semester here on campus at East Carolina University. I'm teaching three classes this semester and looking forward to it. One of them is the Civil War class, always interesting. And hopefully some students will occasionally uh, tune into this and, and boost their grade by learning uh, from the author about some Civil War topics. Coming up this semester, or this season on Civil War Talk Radio, will be the annual Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, This Hallowed Ground Tour. Uh, Hopefully that will be on. The COVID will stay low enough. We can do that. Uh, So so do your bit and uh, sign up for the tour. Actually, there are two tours, one in May, and that one's already sold out. Uh, But there's going to be another one June 18 through 26 with a pre-tour of the Shenandoah Valley, June 15 through 18. And I am going to be leading both of those tours this year as uh, the people who share those duties with me have other obligations at that particular time, so I said I would do both of them. Really looking forward to that. Uh, If you haven't signed up for the first one, there's room on the second bus, June 18 to 26. Go to Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Uh, I don't know, dot .com, dot .something, uh, and see when they go and, and, and join us. It'll be fun. And if you're not too far from eastern North Carolina right now, I just got an email today that uh, Wade Sokolowski, old friend of the show, uh, he's been here. Uh, he's written about the Battle of Wise Forks near Kinston, North Carolina, not far from Greenville. And I found out he's going to be leading a tour of the Wise Forks battle sites uh, on February 18th. It's a Friday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. If you're interested in getting involved with that, uh, send me an email. The the deep voice guy will tell you my email address if you have not yet memorized it. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you how to get in touch if you want to partake of that tour. You can find other things out about the show, as always, at impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney continues to keep things up to date. Uh, There you can see next week, Chuck Veet will return to the show. He's been here twice before and has a new book 
called A Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler, Donaldsonville, Louisiana, 28 July, 1863. I didn't know there were any old perspectives on it, so I'm very curious to learn about this. On the 26th, John F. Messner will come to us uh, live from the UK to tell us about a Scottish blockade runner in the American Civil War named uh, Johannes Willey and his steamer, The Advance. And then we'll finish up, that's the end of January, we'll start February on February 2nd, 2022 with Deanne Blanton, uh, who is the founder of the Society for Women and the Civil War. She's the co-author of a book you probably already familiar with called They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the Civil War. We'll talk about her book, but also about the Society for Women in the Civil War. And there'll be lots more, but uh, you can read about it at the website. You can buy the books there. You can donate to the show. Thank you all who supported us in 2021 and continue to do so with your continuing donations. Those are awfully welcome. And uh, uh, just looking forward to another good season here at Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight we are talking uh, about not a contemporary book, not a book that just came out. I'm looking at the spine and the Library label says 2003, so I'm going to guess that's the date of publication. Sure is, LSU Press. Uh, it's a book called The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. Uh, the author is uh, Frank O'Reilly. He is a uh, works for the National Park Service at Chancellorsville, uh, which is where I saw him last summer, uh, last October rather, on a Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours venture. Uh, we were in the Chancellorsville Visitor Center. I glanced at the Ranger's name badge said, I know that name. You, you wrote the Fredericksburg book that I've never read that I felt guilty about. Uh, and I thought, here's my chance uh, to have an excuse to read the book and, uh, and talk with the author. So things worked out. We communicated, and I'm happy to say, if the technology is working, that he should be with us now. Frank, are you there? Hi, how are you doing, Jerry? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, you're having a lot of snow up there in Virginia these days. Are, are you uh, snowed in? Do you have power? Uh, the, the power is kind of spotty in this part of the world right now. Um, we had 16 and a half inches of, of snow. Wow. And um, while in many parts of the world uh, they might scoff at us here in Virginia, um, we don't have really the technology to deal with 16 and a half inches of snow right now. So we're trying to make uh, make ends meet the best we can. Well, I, I grew up in Michigan, and 16 inches is a lot of snow in Michigan. Uh, that, that's nothing to, to, to look askance at. I saw in the news uh, that the, a, a big oak was damaged at Fredericksburg uh, by the snow. Is that, do you know anything about that? We lost um, a huge branch off of a tremendous um, um, willow oak right mm-hmm. by the Battlefield Visitor Center, right by the, the, the stone wall and the sunken road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a wartime um, uh, tree, but uh, uh, she was a pretty old one and certainly an iconic piece. But uh, she, she's shorn down on one side now. Well, is, is the tree going to stay up, do you know, or, or are they going to have to evaluate that? Uh, I, the initial evaluation looks like we're going to be able to save that tree. It's just that it, it lost uh, 
a couple of big limbs, so I would say it's uh, it's about a thousand pounds lighter now. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> no, I can <laughs> it picture it. I, I can picture it right out there near the the map and the the restroom and the the bookstore and the visitor center. That that uh, it was a beautiful tree. So, uh, uh, well, well, hopefully, hopefully that's the only damage uh, to, to the battlefield. So wintertime uh, is is the time of this battle. Um, I said in the introduction this was a dismal battle, the U.S. defeat, uh, Confederate, you know, slaughter, but doesn't really get them anywhere. What what brought you to study this particular battle? It's a great question. Um, I was struck by this for a couple of reasons. The first was that um, there are were so many campaign studies being written at the same time I was writing. And um, nobody was touching Fredericksburg, or so it seemed. Uh, mm-hmm. There were dozens and dozens of books on Gettysburg, almost uh, a book for every 15 minutes of the battle, it seems. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> only two antiquated books on, on Fredericksburg were there uh, back in the 1980s and 90s. Um, so I, I decided that there's this great big void that needed to be answered. Um, the other thing that I was struck by was that um, it's unusual to have winter campaigns in the 19th century. So mm-hmm. there had to be bigger forces at work to um, induce not only the Army of the Potomac to go forward that winter, but literally every field army of the Union to go forward that winter. Uh, so I wanted to explore that as well. Well, the, uh, the strategic setting that you present at the beginning, I, th- I thought was particularly interesting because it, when you get the standard chapter about Fredericksburg in a survey of, of the war, it pretty much starts with one side's behind a stone wall, the other guys charge up and get killed. Uh, but how did they get there? And and it, I guess you get the short answer, Burnside got to the river but didn't have his pontoons. End of story. But you start before that, that, that Burnside and, and Lee are facing each other further west, and there's a number of strategic alternatives. And listeners, this is the time to uh, put the podcast on pause, get out your maps of uh, central Virginia and see where the railroad goes from Washington south uh, southwest, see where a quiet creek is, and and, uh, and follow along uh, the, the strategic options. What, what were Burnside's strategic options when he took over from McClellan? I decided to um, pick up the narrative right with the um, ascension of Burnside to command so that we could all experience it with the, the same novelty that he had. Uh, and looking at the, um, the strategic situation, the, the Army of the Potomac had been maneuvering down the Orange and Alexandria Railroad and had gotten uh, stopped and stymied uh, around Warrington, Virginia. Uh, Robert E. Lee had initially been out in the Shenandoah Valley, but quickly moved Longstreet's Corps across the mountains and blocked the road south um, at uh, uh, Culpeper. Mm-hmm. But he had also strictly left Stonewall Jackson back in the valley uh, to linger uh, on the Union flank and rear as hovering as a potential threat to descend upon the Union rear and create havoc, not unlike he had done during Second Manassas. Mm-hmm. So there's there's really a wide open field here. It's not it's not a, a done deal. Burnside could keep going forward against Lee's main force, or he can sideslip 
to the left and, and cross Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. Again, on a map, it just looks like, well, that's the obvious thing. I-95 goes from Washington to Richmond right across at, at Fredericksburg. Why don't you just go that way? But there's no railroad at the time there. It, it, it's not an obvious decision, it seems to me. The, the, the railroad that ran through Fredericksburg uh, ran to Richmond, mm-hmm. but it didn't go to Washington. It, it, right, right. It stops, it, yeah. Yeah, it stops on the Potomac River, so uh, it's as good as its name. It's the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac. Mm-hmm. Um, and much of it had been damaged by the uh, <laughs> the Army of the Potomac when it abandoned the area during the Second Manassas Campaign and was going to have to rebuild. And uh, if the Confederates got astride the railroad itself, um, even if Burnside could make progress, the Confederates could easily destroy the railroad uh, as they backed up. And that is only going to slow down the Union advance. So for Burnside, he was kind of struck by the idea of Fredericksburg because it was a, a transportation hub. Uh, it not only had major highways uh, like the Telegraph Road and the, the, the Stage Road, but it, it had this railroad. And being a winter campaign, uh, the railroad was particularly um, enticing because it was an all-weather, all-purpose way of functioning uh, to make sure that the Army was resupplied and, and reinforced if necessary. Roads and, often and, wind up turning into quagmires. <laughs> yeah, as, as we see it in, in, uh, in January of 63, certainly. The, uh, the, I was struck by your description of, of Dahlgren's raid. Everyone's heard of Dahlgren's raid of Richmond, but uh, uh, Union sent cavalry into Fredericksburg before the campaign we're talking about here, that, that Fredericksburg wasn't a heavily guarded site. Union troops waltzed in and out again. Uh, what, when did Lee figure out, I'd better protect this place? It, 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 the idea of protecting Fredericksburg came pretty late to the game for Robert E. Lee. Um, initially, he was marshalling just about every kind of combat-worthy troops he could uh, and kept them on a tight rein with the Army of Northern Virginia. The troops that were sitting in garrison duty at Fredericksburg were kind of the, the I hate to use the word dregs, but not the, the, the A-list units. Uh-huh. Uh, so when the Union Army turns attention to Fredericksburg, the first big question they have is, is there going to be any resistance? So they sent Ulrich Dahlgren down there to um, check it out. And while I think he was supposed to do it stealthily, uh, he did it in more of a, an old-fashioned Western movie and, and went straight down the, the main street shooting it up. Um, mm-hmm. He caught about 400 or 500 Confederates um, flat-footed there. But um, the, the idea wasn't to, to stay. It was just to see if there was anybody there. So Dahlgren rushed in, shot it up, uh, and then rushed right back out uh, to report that there was minimal resistance. Although, of course, that would, that would provoke some resistance. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more. Our guest tonight, Frank O'Reilly, is the author of The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. to Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Frank O'Reilly, author of The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. If you're looking for the book on Amazon, the author's full name is Francis uh, Augustin O'Reilly, except I'm not sure how to say the middle name. Is that right, Frank? <laughs> it is kind of a, a strange-looking one. It it does look like Augustin, but um, actually pronounced Austin. Ah, okay. So uh, if you're looking it up, there's a G in there. Uh, if you're just chatting, it's Austin. Very good. Uh, Francis Austin O'Reilly. I'll be able to use that formally. Um, so this book would came out in 2003, and you mentioned no one else was writing about uh, about the Battle of Fredericksburg at that time. Since then, there have been uh, a couple books on the topic. Uh, of course, George Rabel's book a few years ago, and, and John Madison had a book, uh, Worse Place Than Hell, that just came out in the last year or so. Uh, now, when back in the 90s, there were a whole series of biographies of Sherman that came out all within a few months of each other. And one of the authors wrote that it was like having a six-shooter emptied it into his abdomen one bullet at a time each time a new book came out on Sherman while he was still writing. But your book's been out for a while. Do you still have that same proprietary feeling when someone else writes about it? Honestly, no. Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, the, the great beauty in all of this is that uh, uh, George Rabel was writing at the same time I was, ah. and we just didn't know. Um, <laughs> we got, to, um, got together. We met on the, on the Fredericksburg battlefield and spent a day out in the field um, trying to trying to figure out each other's vision and what we wanted to do, and mm-hmm. uh, recognize that we were both looking at this event from through different lenses. Right. Um, and the exciting thing for me also was that um, um, a wonderful historian, uh, Robert K. Crick, uh, yes, had had made a wonderful statement early on in my my writing, and he said that I would never succeed with a Fredericksburg book because it would need two volumes, and no publisher would ever do two volumes. 
And uh, so it turns out that, uh, uh, at least from my perspective, George Rabel and I wound up writing the two volumes. Uh, we covered all the bases that uh, the other one didn't. Um, so I'm really excited. I think that they, they're, they're companionable books. Uh, I that, like that. And then, and then when it comes to um, uh, people like John Madison, whose writing is absolutely spectacular, mm-hmm. um, I loved his manuscript. But his book is, is wonderful. I recommend it to everyone. Um, he's, he's a reminder to me that um, I'm fulfilling what I set out to do. And that is when I wrote about Fredericksburg, I didn't want it to be the end of the conversation. I want it to be the beginning of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I like to see that ongoing. Well, I, I think it, you make a great point about how complementary these books are, that they they are about the same battle, but they don't just go over the same ground one after another. They, they have very different approaches, different interpretive lenses. Uh, you give us a great deal of thick description of tactical detail and uh, really it's the book you'd want to have while you're at the battlefield. Uh, you'd want to have read it in advance. You're not going to read... Uh, it, it's a substantial book. We're looking at, at some 500 pages, uh, so you're not going to want to be reading it while you're on the battlefield. You want to have read it and then open a section and, and you've got all these these descriptions, these primary sources that you reference of individual accounts of uh, uh, participants. So you really get a sense of what it must have been like to have been there on that December day. Uh, it just, just I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, I, if that's not clear. Uh, let's get back to uh, Burnside's strategy. He decides to go, um, uh, d- decides to, to go to Fredericksburg, uh, get around Lee's right flank, he hopes. One of the things he does is, is reorganize the army into the grand divisions, uh, put several corps under a single commander. And years ago, when I first started reading this, I thought, well, this is just goofy. You know, you've already got the corps. Why, why do you need a, yet another layer? But the more I think about it, the more it seems he's anticipating what Grant does when he pairs the army down to just four main branches, four corps in the, the Overland campaign, or what Lee does throughout the war. Two or three are about the number you can manage. And instead of having seven at Gettysburg, Burnside's got it down to three grand divisions. Is was he ahead of his time? <laughs> um, you know, I I kind of looked at him the other way. I I found him very traditional. Huh. Um, I I was looking at him taking a page straight out of Napoleon and huh. how he would maneuver his forces. Um, and since uh, Napoleonic tactics and Napoleonic strategy was was the the cause du jour at West Point, I'm sure he was deeply steeped in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but um, where things go from there, uh, the Army of the Potomac had already tried wing commands uh, under McClellan during the Maryland campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they would try it again on the way up to Gettysburg as well. Often it led to, to some confusion because the understanding of the wings was that it was judicious for maneuvering, but not necessarily for combat. Uh, so all the wings were dissolved on the field of battle. Um, McClellan did it at Antietam, Geta, uh, George Meade did it at Gettysburg, but not everybody got that. Um, for example, 
during Gettysburg, Henry Slocum never thought of himself as being the 12th Corps commander. He thought of himself as the right wing commander and that Alpheus Williams was the 12th Corps commander. Mm-hmm. Um, at Antietam, uh, the same fallacy occurred in which the 1st and the 9th Corps were banded together on the way to the battlefield, but the night before the battle, uh, the 1st Corps was taken away and moved to the other end of the battlefield under Joe Hooker. Um, That left the wing commander, Ambrose Burnside, nominally without a wing. I think that that left a a sour taste in his mouth and that... uh, he felt the necessity that when he became an army commander that he would formalize that so that there would be no misunderstanding that wings are perpetual, whether maneuvering or on the field of battle. And yet, but since the Corps still exists, you've now got an extra layer of command uh, in your army that just leads to confusion and and uh, breakdowns in communication, as you show throughout the battle. Uh, <laughs> Although, while we're... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was agreeing with you. I, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the extra layer does create confusion and confound. Um, if nothing else, the Corps commanders are not familiar with this this sequence of, of command. And um, if it's going to be so rigidly formal, it then becomes a real big problem. What if you are getting reinforced from a Corps that belongs to a different grand division, um, which is something that happened on the south end of the field where the 1st and the 6th Corps make up the left grand division, but they relied heavily on reinforcements from the United States 3rd Corps, which were part of the center grand division. Um, It's conceivable that um, a division commander in the 1st Corps would have to ask for reinforcements by appealing to the first corps commander who would appeal to the left grand division commander who would appeal to the army commander to order the center grand division commander to tell the third corps commander to release the division. Uh, That would be a nightmare. And I think even they saw that. Um, There was an attempt to kind of short circuit it and have elements of the third corps answer to the first corps um, when in battle, mm-hmm. if necessary. But uh, unfortunately, not everybody got that memo. So some were dogmatic and refused to obey orders, um, while others were pulling their hair out trying to get help. Well, well, I, 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 I'm going to back away from my endorsement of the Grand Divisions. Then I, 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 that's very convincing. <laughs> the I, 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 the idea of uh, limiting the number of direct report seems still a good idea, but, but not the way it was done here. Uh, the battle has a well, lot of other... Well taken. Yeah, there are a lot of other things I mean, that happen in this battle that had not happened at other places um, anywhere in American history, and uh, you describe a number of these. Uh, one that I'm sure most listeners are, are familiar with is the uh, uh, the bridging of the Rappahannock. When, when, uh, when Burnside gets to the, the far side of the river and has to cross it. Uh, he doesn't do so when he had the chance right away, but when it's time to do so, he has his engineers build bridges, and building a bridge under fire to the enemy side seems suicidal, and of course it is. Uh, so we get a, a river crossing under fire. This, uh, uh, Whose idea was that? How, how did that come about? It's... Um 
it's it's kind of a plan that's um, predicated on a complete fallacy on the battlefield, and that is that uh, Burnside thought that he could build bridges uh, in front of the army instead of behind an army uh, if he could create overwhelming firepower on the riverfront. Uh, so he massed a, an impressive number of guns, over uh, 183 guns, uh, overlooked the Rappahannock River. Um, I don't think the Army of the Potomac had ever seen that kind of firepower prior to this. Uh, so the understanding was that if anybody wanted to mess with the engineers, that they would be um, immediately obliterated. It, the fallacy in it is that um, artillery is wonderful as if it goes after big units. Um, it doesn't have any allowance for going after individuals who are hidden in, in, in among the houses uh, uh, and backyards of Fredericksburg's riverfront. Um, hitting an individual with, a, with cannon fire is, is pretty difficult to do. Uh, one artillerist in the Army of the Potomac had a pretty interesting way of putting it. Uh, he said it didn't really matter how many cannons they had. It was like trying to hit a fly with a pistol. Mm. <laughs> so you have to be a pretty good shot, and, and there are a lot of flies over there hiding uh, along the riverbank. Right. So, so right. when the bridging attempt fails, we get the the amphibious assault. Uh, that seems a little less suicidal, but not too much. <laughs> and in fact, to, to Burnside, it, it seemed like it was even more suicidal to him. Um he tried to talk out or talk the folks out of trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, late in the afternoon, Burnside had to admit that, uh, uh, as he put it, the entire army is held by the throat by a couple of sharpshooters. Uh, they hadn't been able to drive the Confederates away with a bombardment, which was unprecedented. Um, the idea of the United States Army bombarding a, city, a civilian population, a city, mm-hmm. in an active fluid battle, uh, it had only been done in a siege, but not like this. Uh, when that failed, um, the novelty of, of putting people in boats and ferrying them across and establishing a bridgehead, well, that makes perfect sense to us. Right. Uh, but on December 11, 1862, there wasn't a single person in the United States Army who had ever done such a thing or practiced such a thing or trained or read or talked about such a thing. So... The, the really daunting pressure in all of this is that uh, if you're looking at Burnside's plans on December 11th, the step one on the road to Richmond is make stuff up, which is pretty unsettling from the highest command. Uh, it is pretty amazing from the lower echelons that they're able to adapt and improvise and make stuff up uh, so successfully. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, this is literally the first amphibious assault under fire in American military history. And when they hit the other side of the river, it's the first beachhead ever established under fire in American history. Um, that's, that's incredible. Uh, I have to admit that I enjoyed writing about that as just about more than anything else in the book, because it was so exciting to see such a pioneering expedition. It, it is a fascinating moment. The uh, it's not as if they had assault boats ready for this because no one had thought of. They used the bridges, the bridge pontoons, improvised into boats. There's, uh, I've always wondered why, and maybe you're not speaking for the Park Service, I know, but uh, at at the uh, 
the the house at, at Chatham above Fredericksburg there's a model pontoon on the lawn there that's like a three-quarter size model and I've always wondered why not go the extra 25% and just have a full-size model there uh, it's on the front that's lawn it's not question. like there's they're not short for room they were actually um, uh, pontoons that were um, built specifically um, for um, a major motion picture on the Civil War. And, oh, uh, that's where they're from. We, right. So we, we wound up inheriting those, uh, or I should say the National Park Service wound up inheriting mm-hmm. a section of those. Uh, so they were, they were built for camera-ready uh, film. Uh, they weren't really built for scale. Un- wonder that that's great. I I've always wondered that. Every time I see them, I think, what what a funny scale model to put out there. But it makes perfect sense. Um, so the uh, the crossing takes place under uh, you know, extraordinary circumstances, and then the uh, it, it's followed by urban fighting. And that's another first in American military history. This house to house fighting. Uh, again, we think Absolutely. of that. You know, it's routine in the 20th and 21st century, but they'd never done anything. You're right. Uh, the American um, military, uh, well, I should back up. This is, in fact, the first urban combat in, in North America. Um, mm-hmm. The American Army only participated in uh, urban combat once prior to this, uh, and that was uh, during the Mexican War, fighting in the streets and houses of, of Monterey. Okay. But... Uh, uh, when it came time to even studying the Mexican War, everybody skirted Monterey because Monterey was an aberration. It was the exception to the rule. Um, it's Fredericksburg that makes them a forceful reminder that it's not the exception anymore. And in fact, as we venture into the 21st century, it's more the rule than ever. Um, so the experience at Fredericksburg really is... A changing moment. It's uh, it's that significant shift in the evolution of the military experience for the American soldier. Another thing I learned from your book was that uh, once they established the bridgehead, Burnside had a telegraph line run across the river, so that uh, for the first time in military history, you got a general with tactical telegraphic communication from headquarters to part of his army on the field. Not that he used it effectively, but that had never been done. You're right. It it is it is really quite a revolutionary battle. Um, and the spectacular thing about the, the telegraph is that um, it's, um, it was one of the great state-of-the-art equipment things that um, nobody had any training on. Uh, least of all the, the general officers who were asked to trust it. And so um, that was that was a major start, but it was it was kind of a false start. Uh, the Signal Corps was going to have to grow up quite a bit before that really becomes something effective. But it was a nice first try, and uh, they they learned considerably from the experience. Not only uh, getting generals trained to trust it, um, but also to get soldiers themselves to trust uh, miles and miles of line that uh, cut across their fronts. Um, the, rail, uh, the telegraph was often interrupted during the Fredericksburg campaign by Union soldiers chopping up the, the wires. Uh, some had a, a, a thought that they were uh, triggers for 
um, landmines, or as they call them, torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Um, others discovered that if you hacked up a, a telegraph wire, it had lots of little wires in it that made wonderful twist ties for all of their gear. So everybody <laughs> wanted a hunk. Uh, so they don't know what they're what they're messing with there. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back talk more with our guest Francis Austin O'Reilly, Frank O'Reilly, author of the Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Frank O'Reilly about his uh, definitive history, tactical history of the Battle of Fredericksburg. It's called the Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. We've talked about how this fits into the collection of really interesting work done on this battle since this book appeared in 2003. Uh, But... This book completely stands up as still the the, the tactical description uh, par excellence of this battle, and, and worth your reading for that reason. Uh, Frank, you described the after the Union forces occupy Fredericksburg. Of course, that night uh, there is looting. Uh, the the town is sacked. Civilian property is or uh, civilian houses are, are broken into, and your your language, your choice of adjectives suggested to me that you you thought this was you know bad behavior this was inappropriate my thought reading the account is that once the confederates chose to defend within civilian houses on the waterfront that converted those houses to military positions and thus they became fair game and destroying what was then confederate public property was no different than jackson destroying uh, the, the the depot at Manassas Junction during the second Manassas campaign, burning you know, millions of dollars of federal property, but we go that's war, uh, that that's that's fair. How is it any different for the Federals to do that in Fredericksburg? 
a great question. Um, the, I, I am a person who does struggle with uh, <laughs> uh, the federal exes in, in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made a really good distinction that Jackson destroyed federal property. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the federals who occupy Fredericksburg indeed do destroy Confederate property, but they go beyond that and destroy a, a tremendous amount of civilian property. Um, and not to the point of uh, this is something that will help the the, the Union Army. Uh, so they did take a lot of, of that stuff like bedding uh, mm-hmm. in preparation for uh, uh, the wounded. But it also became uh, kind of a bacchanalia where mm-hmm. all discipline just completely fell apart. And that's where I became uh, distressed for the Army of the Potomac in that uh, it had a fundamental breakdown in command. Um, There was no discipline. Uh, People stole and looted whatever they wanted. Um, If they found something better than the treasure they had just pilfered, uh, rather than put one down and pick one up, uh, they would destroy the one and then take whatever was their new uh, object of, of desire. Uh, it it was distressing to read some of the letters of Union soldiers, but even more distressing to read the Union officers. Um, even the highly vaunted uh, uh, Harvard Regiment of the 20th mm-hmm. Massachusetts, uh, some of their blue-blood uh, uh, Boston Brahmins were writing that uh, uh, they were going in and out of houses trying to find some silver trinket to send a mother but uh, couldn't find anything because their commanding officer had beat them to all the good stuff. Uh, that, that, that tells that they're not taking care of their men as well. Um, I so, think that's a, that's a very good point. That, that uh, I was looking at it from the point of view that, you know, in the ancient world, if a, a town was besieged and surrendered, then you were supposed to treat the civilians decently. But if there was resistance then the the rule of law in in that era was the civilian population could be treated any way uh including uh, murder and and assault now the union forces of course don't go murdering civilians but once the confederates turn it into a war zone uh, they they lose all claim to be able to hide under civilian uh privileges but you make a, a really good point that it, that the union army does lose its discipline it does break down and and uh, that that doesn't benefit anybody uh, uh when they do that when at this I, point if i could oh, go ahead yeah i so the one thing that i thought was tremendously telling to me was that mm-hmm. uh, um some of the uh, union officers were stealing big ticket items uh like pianos <laughs> and um <laughs> the first thing they wanted is somebody to wheel the pianos back across the the pontoon bridges to back to the Stafford side of the river. And um, it's, while it's distressing to see somebody stealing a piano, the more distressing thing to me, if I was a soldier, is the realization that my commanding officers don't think we're going any further. Uh, that's why they're trying to get all their loot back to the other side of the river. Uh, so everything that happens on the Fredericksburg side of the river, uh, it, you're already uh, telegraphing that it's going to turn out badly. That's yeah, got to be devastating. 
and, and you've only got those two bridges downtown, and, and you're blocking one of the piano going the wrong way. That that's uh, definitely problematic. Uh, I would not want to not want to be seeing that. Uh, at this point, in, in again, in the, uh, the school book version of Fredericksburg, the next thing we are going to read about are the assaults up Marine's Heights, and you describe them uh, in, in moving detail, but you, but that's only half the battle, and the public pays much less attention to the fighting on the, uh, the southern side of the battlefield, the Union left, Confederate right flanks, and here... Uh, the the federal army almost wins the day. They break Stonewall Jackson's line. What what happened there? Um, the, the real mystery of Fredericksburg is is that so many people don't know where to pinpoint the 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 battle. Uh, right. And I use that term in the uh, the military event where uh, where the tactical fulcrum of this battle is, uh, and it's it's not Marie's Heights. Um, it is about five miles south of Marie's Heights on the other end of the Confederate line where Stonewall Jackson was. Uh, the Confederate line was arranged on a series of hills outside of Fredericksburg uh, running from north to south and all of it facing eastward. Uh, with the Union Army attacking uh, those heights, um, they had two choices. They could attack the north end of it that jutted out towards the city and that was Marie's Heights where they could attack the southern end of it that jutted out uh, a place called Prospect Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, winning at Marie's Heights really gave Burnside nothing. If he had some by, by some miracle overrun that position, the Confederates could always leave, and there'd have to be more battles before Richmond ever fell. Mm-hmm. But uh, an attack on the south end, because it is closer to Richmond, if a Union success should happen there, uh, it would not only make the entire Confederate line untenable, but it would already give Burnside the inside track to the Confederate capital. Uh, it would prevent Lee from retreating back on his capital. So there were so many great opportunities for Burnside uh, down on the south end of the battlefield where there was absolutely none on the north end of the battlefield. Unfortunately, um, while he marshaled over 60,000 troops in front of that position, his orders were pretty <laughs> mealy mouth. Uh, and led to wild misinterpretations of what what was supposed to go on. So Burnside thought he was writing orders saying, use everybody. Uh, But the commander down on the south end, William B. Franklin, was reading with a very conservative lens uh, that says we should only use a very small portion of our, our, our force and that everybody else should be ready to make rapid movements to the south. Um. If they had been engaged, they wouldn't have been ready to march. But uh, uh, out of the 60,000 that were primed to attack, uh, only about 8,000 made the initial attack. And and yet they have a degree of success that you don't see on a lot of battlefields. It's really amazing. In fact, I, I think almost the, the secret ingredient of their success is the, the smallness of their force. Hmm. Uh, not every Confederate can take a shot at them. Uh, but uh, when they went forward against the Confederate lines, they had several false starts trying to get across a big open field that um, Union and Confederate soldiers later christened the Slaughter Pen Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they were able to get across the field, uh, they discovered uh, that the Confederates had made a, a significant tactical error. 
they had a swamp that jutted into their lines and um, left a 600-yard gap in the Confederate front line. As far as Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were concerned, um, the swamp was impassable to an organized unit, so nobody was going to take a brigade or a division through it. Mm-hmm. But nobody made any allowances for a disorganized unit to come through there. Uh, the so, Pennsylvania Reserves, then commanded by a, a brand new major general who is completely obscure to the Army, uh, George Gordon Meade, uh, made that uh, attack, and they hit that gap. Uh, and Meade wrote in his official reports something I've never seen anybody else ever write. Uh, he said that... Uh, the brigades split from the division and the regiments split from the brigades and everybody went in on their own, uh, mm-hmm. which tells me of a fundamental breakdown in command. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, while a division couldn't penetrate the, the gap, it turns out a riot could, uh, uh, which I... got in among the Confederates and showed tremendous um, uh, opportunism uh, by exploiting the Confederates uh, as they went through the gap, they, they surprised Confederates north and south of the gap and burst the gap up to twice its size. Um, it, it, a second uh, Union it, division in support it, helped uh, even make that bigger. It, it's a really dramatic story. Uh, of course, the Confederate counterattack eventually does close that off, and, and uh, the lack of further support dooms the Union, and, and so that is the part of Fredericksburg we don't remember very well. The part we do always read about is is the attack up the hill toward the stone wall. Uh, just a, a minute or so left, but I, I'm reminded of, of John Keegan, the, the military historian, writing about how when he wrote about the Battle of the Somme and the British troops going forward into artillery and machine gun fire, he said it, it became an effort to pound the keys of his typewriter. Uh, uh, just like slogging across the battlefield as the letters slogged across the page. Uh, did, as, as you described charge after charge up, up Marie's Heights, did you ever experience a, a sort of vicarious PTSD for these guys? Um, it was absolutely harrowing uh, following them. Um, reading the, the, the letters and trying to, to tell their stories, um, <laughs> You wind up creating a, a friendship with an entire generation of people you've never met, uh, and to know that they're they're heading into absolute doom is 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 pretty devastating. At the same time, there there are those that um, lift us up even uh, uh, across uh, the the folds of time. Uh, there are those that uh, just showed an eternal optimism that that helped them go, helped their, their comrades go, and it helped me as a writer go. Um, when um, I read uh, the adjutant of the 132nd Pennsylvania said, uh, you'll, you may wonder why we can, how we can do such things, but there are things in this world worse than death. Um, there's, there's cowardice, there's dishonor, there's letting people down. Um, I have duty, and, and this, is, this is sacred. And uh, if I die, I, I can't die better. Um, that man survived barely, but uh, at the same time, I, I was breathless to even think about such things. Now, not everybody on the field was a hero. Um, in fact, uh, a general named Alfred Sully wound up getting a concussion when he got uh, blindsided by a Union soldier running for his life. Uh, the last time <laughs> thing that Sully ever heard, don't stop me, I'm demoralized as hell. Um, <laughs> 
but but those moments, but it, as you describe, of redemption are, are incredible. Unfortunately, Frank, we are out of time. I've, I've got to bring this to an end, uh, it, it, which is how I felt when I got to the end of this book. Like, oh, it's over already? There's, there's, these 500 pages went fast. Uh, listeners, if you have not read this classic work on the Fredericksburg campaign, put it on your list. Uh, the Fredericksburg campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock by Francis Austin O'Reilly, who's been our guest tonight. Frank, so much for thank you so much for being on the show. Hope to see you again uh, on the battlefield soon. Thank you for having me, Jerry. It's been a great pr- uh, privilege of mine. I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, uh, back out on the battlefield this spring and summer. And uh, we'll I wish there. you the very best with your semester. Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.